Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Why is everyone arguing with each other? Like, I did this the other day on an Instagram Live. Let me know if this past year, because of a single disagreement with somebody where you thought X and they thought the opposite of the X, it might be Trump or Spy, it might be about the pandemic, vaccines, whatever. Did you lose a friend over that argument? Essentially, everyone said yes. And so why does it happen? A brand new book, High Conflict by Amanda Ripley, goes over story after story of just how people just lose their minds when they get into these conflicts. Why are these conflicts now bigger than ever? And how to avoid it and how to and how to basically rise and, and become better as a result of the fact that other people are in these conflicts. Here to talk about it is the author herself, Amanda Ripley. So Amanda Ripley just wrote perhaps the most important book on the planet right now, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. The reason I say it's the most important book on the planet right now is I really felt it this entire past year that everybody was either on one side or another. And I never saw this before this much in politics where Literally, the the Democrats I knew hated the Republicans I knew hated, and the Republicans I knew hated the Democrats I knew. There was no middle ground. And the other thing I noticed was that if you were on one side, you had to believe in everything, all 100 issues that the Republicans believed in, or you had to believe in all 100 issues the Democrats believed in. So for instance, if you were, I'm just seeing if I get it right, if you were against hydroxychloroquine as a potential cure for COVID, you were also in favor of higher taxes. And if you were for hydroxychloroquine as a potential cure for COVID, you were against higher taxes. All 75 million people were either on one side or the other, which would be statistically impossible since the issues have nothing to do with each other. And yet that was the way it was. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's like, you know, I almost feel like once a week, sometimes once a day, I feel like people are under a spell. Like people I otherwise really admire, respect, enjoy, it's like they're under a spell. Like they, and, we've been bewitched. <laughs> Do you and ever they feel wouldn't like that? really, they wouldn't really realize, and perhaps I didn't either. Like 
I would see people talking on Facebook on either side. And I would say, don't you think it's important to look at this piece of data, this piece of data, or this piece of data? And either, both sides. And they were like, well, that's just the media uh, saying, that's just false media. Like everything was false media if they didn't uh, agree with it on either side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just shuts down the conversation. It's There's so many conversation stoppers right now in circulation, so yeah. many. Like what made you write this book? You know, four years ago, I decided I just had to do something different. I, I felt like as a journalist, there were just big things I was not understanding about the political conflict that we're in, about the country. And that sort of felt like, you know, journalistic malpractice on some level. And so... I went off in search of people who understand conflict differently than journalists, people who study it, people who are in, immersed in it in all different countries. And I followed people who were stuck in really awful conflicts, like political, personal, all kinds, you know, uh, everything from a politician in California to a former gang leader in Chicago to uh, an activist in England, all kinds of people. And, and I want to add also, it's not this, we've been talking about politics, but it's not just about politics. Like, you talk about conflict in marriage and you have an interesting um, statistic that basically to recover from conflict in marriage for every, for every one negative interaction, you need five positive interactions. So I'm going to ask you about that later. Cause I want to talk politics stuff first, but yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. Well, that was one of the surprises is that our behavior in conflict is actually not that different, whether it's politics or divorce court or a labor walkout the behavior is really similar, but we don't usually look at it that way, right? Like we, we either talk about political polarization or we talk about gangs, but not both. <laughs> you know what I mean? But and, and, I think there's a lot to be learned looking across conflicts. And and you also mentioned like journalistic integrity. And I wonder if that, I mean, this is a side issue, but I wonder if that even exists anymore because it used to be the case that I felt that even if a, a, a journalistic source like the New York Times or CNN was biased, that at least they're, they would try to stick as much as possible to like, this is what happened. But now it feels like every article is an opinion piece. And, and that always disturbs me. Like if I look at, I'm looking at CNN right now and it's, you know, uh, it, it's just ridiculous how biased it is. I don't even want to read any specific headlines. Um, but I will, uh, on CNN, more than a hundred Americans will die from guns every day unless Democrats get rid of the filibuster. Like just tying these <laughs> incidents together. It doesn't seem like a news kind of headline. And then on Fox, there's the same thing. So on Fox, I'll go there. And it's like, uh, Kamala Harris is laughing. Mayorkas is lying and Biden is lost on border crisis. So it's like, there's not even, they don't even pretend to be talking about news anymore. It's just too, it's like two journalistic, uh, institutions shouting at each other. Yeah. And I, I guess there's a couple things going on, right? Like one is there's like been long time distrust building against news media, right? And then in the face of that, the journalists are also in the conflict. Like we're not different. We're human, right? So it's very easy to get captured by the conflict and still think you're doing a good job. And then of course, there's all the business incentives which you know, Fox News realized a long time ago that you can really appeal to fear and anger and grievances. And now other outlets have realized that as well. So there's a lot of things going on. I do think there are still serious journalists with integrity, but it's getting really, really hard to resist the magnetism of the conflict, which, which is normal, but also you know, uh, painful to see, honestly. 
So what's going on? How did we get into a situation? I mean, there's always been conflict, right? But how do we get into a situation where the, the 75 million people uh, believe in the exact 100 things and the other 75 million people believe the exact opposite, even though those things have nothing to, the hundred things they all agree on have nothing to do with each other. Right, right, right. How do we get bewitched? I mean, I think one thing that I've learned from the people I've followed in conflict is that there are two important kinds of conflict, and I hadn't realized that. So one kind is high conflict, which is the kind we're seeing now, which is when it can start small, but it becomes all-consuming and self-perpetuating. It's usually an us versus them kind of conflict. And it's the kind of thing where actually our brains and our group behavior changes under the influence of high conflict. It's kind of like this, it's like gravity, like it pulls everything down. But if you don't know it's happening, it's easy to get really lost in it. Um, and it ends up in like over time, everyone suffers to different degrees. But in the end, you really end up in a bad way because of the way high conflict really exacerbates all of our kind of cognitive biases and so forth. So that's one kind, right? But then there's another kind of conflict that can also be like really heated and stressful and intense. Uh, and I came to know it as good conflict, but it's basically the same idea. You disagree, you stand your ground, you express yourself, but curiosity still exists. Questions still get asked, right? There's still some level of dignity that you can retain in this process. And the main thing, the main difference between good conflict and high conflict is that good conflict goes somewhere productive, like somewhere you're actually interested to go, whereas high conflict doesn't go anywhere. Like it is the destination. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, can you give an example of good conflict in society? Yeah. So good conflict would be the kind of thing where, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Mostly I, I find people have it with friends. Maybe you have a good friend. You don't usually have a lot of conflict, but you run into some significant conflict, right? But you're able to actually be curious about why they're upset, right? And you're able to ask them a question about that without shutting down, without assuming you know, without, um, you know, cutting them off or these kinds of things, right? That curiosity is like the key to the kingdom, if you can cultivate, and there are ways to cultivate curiosity systematically, then you can get to good conflict. There's actually a, a, a place at Columbia University where they study conflict. It's called the Difficult Conversations Lab. Um, there's a professor named Peter Coleman and his colleagues have literally orchestrated, like put people together who disagree strongly about really controversial things. And they've recorded like 500 of these conversations and they study them. And again, they see these two kinds of conversations. In some, it's just like a tug of war. It's just like anger, frustration, anger, frustration. And you know, sometimes they have to shut down the conversation before the 20 minutes is over. But then in others, there's anger and there's frustration. And then there's like a whole galaxy of other things too that people cycle through, like curiosity, like humor, like understanding. And people ask more questions in those conversations, which are more like good conflict, and people leave the lab more satisfied. So you can see it, you can map it, you know, and they now figured out that they can actually incite it, they can provoke it, which is really cool. How, how um, do you, how do you, like, let's say I'm in a high conflict situation, like I'm arguing with someone about, I don't know, either, whether it's vaccines or politics or sports, 
how can I reduce the tensions and get back to good conflict? Yeah. So one thing they learned is something you mentioned before is the magic ratio, which originally comes out of the work of the Gottmans at the Love Lab in Seattle, where they study marriage. So, which is, you know, just the flip side of this coin, right? Um, and basically what they found is you need about a five to one ratio. Like the couples for whom conflict could be good and stay good and productive had about five positive interactions. Could be something really quick, right? But five positive interactions for every one negative. And the same is true in the difficult conversations lab. It's actually, there it was a little easier. It was three to one. But what, but what does that mean? Like, let's say you're in the middle of, you know, let's say two people are in the middle of Democrat versus Republican type of argument. How do they quickly step back and say, oh, I better turn this into a good conflict and then <laughs> implement that? If you're like right in the middle of arguing. Yeah, if you're, if you're, yeah, it's, you're right. That's easier to do like before and right. Like just kind of build credit in the bank. Like you always want to put that money in the bank within, in your, like with your neighbors, your loved ones, your family, your friends, even people on Twitter you disagree with, you want to take every opportunity to put some money in the bank. But once you're already in it, to your, to your point, then what? What I have found and what they found in this, in the research as well, is you want to slow down the conflict. Okay. So one way to do that is to loop the person or in other words, rephrase what they said in the most elegant language you can muster and ask if you got it right. I do this over Twitter all the time now. And it sounds super like, you know, kind of corny and, and contrived, but it's actually very challenging to do intellectually and emotionally. So, you know, I will, I will try to really understand like, what the hell are they saying? Like, where are they coming from? And, and it's hard to do, you know, because you want so badly to, to rebuff or counter or argue. And instead you say, okay, okay, okay. It sounds like you're saying that, you feel like there's a microchip in the vaccine and this is terrifying to you. Do I have that right? You got to check. That's the thing I always forget. You got to check. You got to be like, and you got to be curious, like truly curious. That's the hardest part. But I will tell you, it is like magic. Like when you do it, it is incredible how it opens people up, people drop their guard. Are they going to change their mind and suddenly, you know, go out and get the vaccine? No, that's not an overnight thing. That's not how humans work, right? But it does slow down the conflict and allow people to drop their guard a little. And there's been a ton of, of research on this, that people very rarely feel understood or heard. And so they keep escalating, right? So if so, you can, so you can interrupt that cycle. So what's, what's the situation where you personally, have you had that conversation with someone about the microchip? Like what's, what's a conversation you've personally had with someone where you just didn't really understand why were they believing some data, but not other data? Like what did yes. you do and what, what, what was the specific circumstances? I just, I just walked away from this, uh, from a conversation like this. Now, in this case, it was over email, which is almost as bad as Twitter. You ideally really do want to have these conversations on the phone or in person. So I'm I'm like a little embarrassed that I'm admitting to having done it this way because you just lose so much. Like it's just not a good scene. But anyway, that's how it started. Anyway, that's where we're at. So it was about school reopening, right? Like I have very strong feelings about the fact that in my view, many schools have not reopened even when it's been safe to do so. Not all, right? But many have not. And it it just, it like breaks my heart. Like it makes me so sad for families yeah. and kids. Okay. So I have strong emotion coming into it. So I know that's already like red flag. Right. <laughs> and, um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to 
make my case or that I don't think it's important, right? So this other person um, is very opposed to schools reopening in many cases, not all. And uh, I had to really, you know, first, oh, I know what happened. It started on Twitter. And I said, I'd love to hear more about that. I really respect your judgment, which is true. And luckily she took it onto email, which is easier and not public, right? So that's one <laughs> snap in the right direction. And she made her case. And there were some things she said in there that really bugged me. Like I could feel myself being like really like reactive. So the first thing is to just wait. Well, what did she say that that really made you react? Um, just in case you and I have an argument that later who, and I could use yeah. that technique. <laughs> she said that people who argue what I'm arguing basically just want to go on vacation and get their kids out of their house. Huh. Well, why that of course ignores the fact that many people need to work. And, yeah, it, there was a lot and, there, but it and just, also ignores the fact that kids need social interactions to to grow and thrive. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot, but like it just you know, there's a lot we could agree on, but what I didn't like was the belief that she could see into my soul, right? And yeah. we do this all the time in high conflict. Like we think we know what's in other people's hearts, people we've never met, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So uh, so that that pissed me off, but I was just like, let me just wait. Let me reread it a couple of times. Let me walk away, let me come back. And I, you know, I acknowledged all the things in there that I thought I agreed with, you know, or things I hadn't thought of. And there were those things. And then I said, you know, I, th I see it a little differently. Here's what I think, da, 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 da. And I said, and I can tell you, it's not that I want to go on vacation. Like, it's really not. And the irony is we both claim to be deeply, deeply worried about kids. Like, we're both worried about the same kids, like literally in this game. So this is how you end up in high conflict. You end up spending a lot of time and energy fighting with people who actually probably mostly agree with you. And it's just very destructive. Um, so you try to slow it down so you can figure out, like, is this really a fight worth having? Like, is this really <laughs> the best use of time? Yeah, I mean, in almost every case, it's probably not. Certainly if it's an argument on Twitter, like you even say, a good conflict hack is to just get away from it and not go on Twitter, not go on social media. But yeah, what- Which you've I'm, done, right? How is yeah, that going? That, yeah, I mean, most recently I've I've gotten back on a little just because I have, like you, I have a book that just came out. So I have a, a book to promote. But um, it was great. I mean, it really, I had no conflict with anybody because uh, uh, I was tire tired of like listening to people I didn't know say things I didn't agree with, but then accuse me of things like, like, like you were accused of, like you have no soul or you want to you wanna be on, you want to just be on vacation all the time. Like those types of things, people would quote unquote social media yell at me and I didn't understand why they would feel so comfortable being so rude, basically saying something that, you know, you, you at a dinner, you would never, let's say you were at a dinner where you're meeting people for the first time. You would never shout across the table. You just want to be on vacation all the time. Like you would never do that. <laughs> but on Twitter, it's like no problem for people to, to say stuff like that. And, yeah. but, uh, so, so how did you, so you, so you, you calmed down, you took a little mental break. Yeah. And I tried to, I tried to like really, just let's just let's just for like as a thought experiment in my own head let's assume that this person has really the best of intentions and then what okay so how did she get to this different conclusion and try to like really get curious about that the way you would if you were like an anthropologist visiting a remote island culture 
Do you know what I mean? And so then ask those questions like, well, how did you come to this? How did you come to that? And really try to listen. So that's hard to do over email, but I try to show her in each response. I think we went back and forth three or four times. I tried to show her in each response that I had heard what she said and not by doing what I used to do, which is just to say, yeah, I hear you, right? Like, (laughs) Like I actually proved it by distilling what she said what she seemed to care most about in the most elegant language I could muster, which by the way, is not the same as agreeing and people can tell the difference, right? So sometimes when I say this, people get really nervous, like, oh my God, you're agreeing. And I'm like, no, I'm not. That's not the same thing. You know, like proving you've heard someone and understand what they've tried to communicate to you is actually my job, (laughs) right? Like as a journalist and something I should be good at or get good at. It's not the same as agreeing. And she understood that, you know, we were having, we were having a spirited debate. It wasn't that I was agreeing. But I guess you could argue you agreed on, you want the best for kids. Yeah, there were things we did agree on and it's really, yeah, important to keep bringing those up and to, okay, oh, I forgot to tell you what the Difficult Conversations Lab found that is useful in the moment, which is complicate the narrative. So what they found- I saw that in your book and that was an amazing- chapter towards the end. Yeah, what they found in this lab is that they could induce good conflict by showing people a news article before they went in to have their like argument with someone they disagreed with. They could show them each a news article about some other hot button issue, you know, like abortion or gun control or whatever. And if they had the article written in such a way that it was like pretty nuanced, like didn't have to be long, But it just acknowledged that there are not just two sides. There are many sides and it's complicated. And, you know, if you ask the question differently in different polls, you get different results, all of which is true, by the way, for both those issues, right? Um, And it wasn't like it was hard to follow. It was just, you know, acknowledge the complexity. And if you read that article and then go in, people are much more likely to have good conflict, to have better conversations. Conversely, if they gave them a traditional news article that was just two sides, right, then they were much more likely to have high conflict, bad conflict, not a good conversation. So part of what you want to do in those conversations or those, you know, back and forths in the moment is to literally acknowledge complexity. Like you prime people for complexity and then they get a little more curious. So in your situation with this person, could it be that it's case by case that some towns like in rural Montana and there's three people in the school that's different than the middle of you know, Manhattan, where there's a thousand kids per classroom. Exactly. I wish I'd said that, you know, and what I tried to say is, yeah, this is really complicated. There's a lot we don't know about COVID. There's a lot we will know that we still don't know. There's a lot I personally don't know, right? And there's a lot of complicated reasons in every case about why families do or do not want to go back, why teachers do or do not want to go back, uh, why the coverage is the way it is. You know, it's very hard to your point, particularly in the U.S., to generalize about many millions of people, right? Um, when we're, li- I mean, we're really like 50 different countries by many measures, right? So trying to keep that in your head and keep reminding everyone, and she would do the same thing, I noticed. Like once I did that, when she wrote back, she'd be like, you're right, it is really complicated and there's a lot I don't know. And, you know, we both said we were glad to have been able to, you know, hear what the other person thought. And I think that's right. Like, I think it makes me more effective in understanding how to fix this problem or how to make my case if I understand where people are coming from. And it's not just that they want to go on vacation, right? Like that's too easy. Do you ever try to 
steel man the argument so that you 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 know going into the argument or at least halfway through take a step back and say okay if i'm arguing their side like if i'm arguing the side of this other person i would say um look since we don't know so much and since this could affect kids but in in ways that aren't visible for years for all we know and it comes back years later and attacks the organs and whatever that the safest thing is just to figure out how to keep them at home and and until we have a total vaccine just because we don't know so that would be my steel manning of, of her argument yeah yeah and adam grant talks about that in his new book too and and yeah, think i think again. yeah i mean i think it's sort of like depends on the person and and also like how able you are to do that with it has to be genuine right like if it if it is manipulative people sense that in, in my experience right so it's sort of like if you're capable of doing that and meaning it on some level, then I think it's great, you know, but if, if to me in this situation, <laughs> this is my own weakness, it, it might've been hard for me to do that. Yeah. And, and, and so, okay. So, so what happened by the end, you, you got, you, you, you use these techniques. You, so there were several techniques you used that you mentioned in the book. You, you backed away for a little while so you could keep calm and be above the argument, not be like kind of thrashing back and forth. And you, you made an argument that this is more complex and that there are things we don't know. And once people acknowledge that they don't know some things, then that leaves a lot of room for maneuvering. Yeah, exactly. You looped me very well there. <laughs> yeah. That, like it was a way to, you know, realize that if I look, if I show her, I I'm trying to listen, she's likely to say less extreme, more interesting things. So that benefits me, right? Like I actually, yeah. you know, I don't know everything. <laughs> despite how I may feel. There's a ton, most things, I don't know. So like, it's really useful for me to try to get curious about this. And we know from, there's been some research done in Israel about listening that's really interesting that if people feel heard, they say less extreme, more nuanced and ambivalent things. So like the whole conversation changes as soon as people feel heard people are more likely to follow their doctor's orders when they feel heard at a patient visit or to perform in their job when they feel like their boss hears them even if their boss doesn't agree right so there's this kind of like magical power that listening and feeling heard has it sounds really soft and i hate that but it, it's a real thing and i'm now totally bought into it but you know the thing about social media is and particularly i felt like this occurred this past year, but maybe it just occurred for, for me and 89 million other people. But uh, sometimes you don't want to do that. Sometimes you don't want to listen to the other person. Like sometimes I would look at some person or not look, but like watch some person's tweets or Facebook posts and think to myself, is this guy a goddamn idiot? Like, how could he say this without noticing this, this and this? And then I would even post back to them like, but what do you, don't you see this, this, and this, which is directly contrary. And they, they would actually, they wouldn't even be respond because just like I wasn't listening to them, they weren't listening to me. Yeah. That happens all the time on social media. Right. So, I mean, it depends on what your goal is, right? Like if your goal is actually to, con well, what's your goal? Let me ask you, what's the goal? To, to crush their ego and humiliate them. <laughs> Honestly, that's probably my goal in those situations. Cause why am I even talking to somebody, a stranger on Twitter? That could be right. my only goal. So I have some dopamine fix mm. that I'm getting by by annihilating someone's personality by proving <laughs> them to be completely and utterly stupid. 
I, I actually really like the honesty. And so the goal isn't like, oh, I'm going to persuade them or, oh, I'm going to shame them or into like agreeing or, oh, I'm going to like convince all my other followers who are watching or like the goal is much more primal. And I think that's probably right. Um, and so I guess what I've started to see is that while I have those impulses too, um, humiliation is is in particular the nuclear bomb of emotions. That's what... Yeah. Evelyn Lindner calls it, who's a psychologist who studied a lot of war and conflict. And humiliation is like basically handing over your biggest weapon to your opponent. So once you do that, it escalates the conflict, right? Even if they don't respond, you've made it, you've risked making it worse in some way. Because when people feel humiliated, right, they tend, and there's been a ton of research on this, they tend to get aggressive. They withdraw, then they get aggressive. And that is like really easy for humans to feel that way. And it's really powerful. And it's actually processed in the same way as physical pain, but easier for people to revive over and over and over again, just thinking about it. So it's, it's something to just keep in mind. That, yeah, that, this is yeah. one of the reasons why I had to get off social media is I realized this is doing no good to anybody. And we were all engaging in this at least the people I was in Facebook groups or Twitter threads, and there was like no point. And, uh, and it was just much better to, you, you, you could choose your minutes of time reading a book or arguing with somebody on Twitter over an issue that's not going to matter six months from now anyway. So it's the way I kind of just decided I want, I, I, I realized I was getting too sucked into these things. I totally agree. And it's designed to do that, right? As you know, better than I do. And so, I think what I try to do is think about how can I design my life to have other incentives, right? Like there are institutions and rituals and places that really cultivate good conflict as opposed to high. And so how can I like limit my exposures to the things that are, I mean, you know, conflict entrepreneurs, basically like Twitter, many media outlets. Now these things are conflict entrepreneurs, many politicians, not all they're, people, platforms, you know, companies that intentionally exploit conflict for, you know, often for profit, but often, you know, for power or for purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of camaraderie. And you address this somewhat in the, in the book, which is, it's almost like opinions create a hierarchy and you could join at a pretty high level, the hierarchy, which means you get a lot of dopamine from it by strongly agreeing with the alphas of that hierarchy. <laughs> and and being accepted by them. And so there's a pleasure in that and it kind of polarizes people further, you know, because these hierarchies are against each other and gain their power by in part by being against something as opposed to for something. Yeah, like most people are now voting in presidential elections against the other side, not for their side. So, yeah, yeah it's it's really diabolical and it's sort of like how do you just step out of that and um figure out, you know, I mean, you know better than I do, like you could design social media to do something different. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're very capable of good conflict. We're hardwired for it. We do it more often than we do high conflict. But right now, there's, just, there's a lot of things that are incentivizing that dopamine, that, that kind of sense of superiority, that sense of camaraderie. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb 
has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldicher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. 
Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Is it true we do good conflict better than high conflict? Because it seems like if you look at like, you know, and I hate to always pick on Twitter. I think Twitter is a great platform ultimately, but it does seem like when people get into conflict, it's not good conflict on Twitter. It's it's always high conflict. Yeah, right. Because it's designed that way. I mean, you know, not on purpose, but that is how it's designed. It's so, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the history of, you know, human civilization, most things we've accomplished have been in good conflict because it hasn't led to the paralysis we're in, right? Like, as we keep being reminded, you you simply cannot thrive as a society in high conflict. You can't, you just can't. And particularly in such an interdependent world, right? So I think you could, you know, like here's an example, just a tiny example, but you could design a social media network that, and I'm sure they exist, but, uh, you know, somebody had me tr- beta test a, a kind of Twitter overlay where it would just flag each of the tweets that came t- in your feed um, with a little just a little flag, it would say like, probably a bot Mm. or tends to forward false information Mm. or, you know, things like that. And it was amazing how it totally changed my experience, like instantly. Like I totally, now any kind of baiting or mean tweet that was like probably a bot, you know, I mean, I just, I just went right right past me. Like I didn't worry about it. I didn't feel it. I didn't think about it for a single in second, second beyond <laughs> that moment. So there are ways to design it so we have a better sense of who these people are, where they're coming from, what the context is, how, how to calibrate what's coming at us. So so I guess I guess two things. One is how do we end up in this situation where so many issues and belief systems are binary. So there's, I mean, there's no such philosophy as Democrat philosophy and the, versus Republican philosophy. These aren't really schools of thought. The Democrats have for decades been on one side and then they suddenly been on the other side and then same with the Republicans. And, and yet somehow there is this fight to the death between them. So that's, that's just like one example, but it's been happening in America, we've had a two-party system for a long time. It's, how does this happen? And then the other thing is basically, well, how can we use this to our advantage? Basically, like what what are best practices? And we've started talking to them about you know complicating the issue and spending time apart. But you know, what is there a way in general to to live life or to think about conflict so that we're not just avoiding it, that we're thriving from it? Right, right. Because you do need conflict. Like, I think we need more good conflict, not less, you know. Um, That's how you get better as a person and as a society. I mean, to your point about parties, you know, it's really important to always remind yourself, or at least for me, it's helpful, that the founding fathers really hated parties. Like, they did not want there to be parties. And as soon as it happened, two very good friends, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, turned on each other. And they didn't speak for 11 years because of the binary nature of parties. And, you know, there were some ideological differences they had, but they'd had those before. As soon as you sort humans into oppositional categories, especially if there are only two, (laughs) terrible things tend to happen, right? And there's been literally decades and decades of research proving this over and over again. 
we do not do well with two categories. We don't do well with up-down votes. You know, like in 2016, we had Brexit, we had the Columbia peace deal, we had the uh, election in the United States, all these things where these are like really complex things. Um, Columbia's civil war was like 50 years, you know, it was like just a total nightmare. And then it was a 200 some page peace deal and they had people just vote up or down. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> you can't reduce complex human feelings to two. And the same thing is happening now, right? So certainly one obvious way to reduce the binary is to have more than two, <laughs> right? So like, it sounds like, so simple, but. Why doesn't that happen in the U.S.? Like we've basically had, I mean, there have been, every decade or so there's a significant third party, but they never really have a chance of winning. I mean, like, you know, you had Ross Perot in 92, you had people forget about John Anderson in 1980, you had George Walsh in 1968, you had four parties in 1948, but they're never really more than just a footnote ultimately. Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, somebody that I found to be really useful about this is Lee Drutman, who wrote a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, um, which is about this very question, you know, because we see all over the world, I mean, you know, people living in countries with proportional representation, unlike what we have, tend to have more trust in one another. That's the thing we need most desperately in this country, right? People with proportional representation and multi-party systems suffer from less polarization. They see their political system as more fair because it is more fair, right? So there are ways to do this, to do ranked choice voting, to do proportional representation. Maine has done it. Other states are, are moving in that direction. There's a bill in Congress to do this. So there are, it's not like, it feels impossible. It feels like we could never get there, but that, that, that there's no reason that we couldn't get there. Um, so I found his book to be helpful with that. Yeah, but like, you know, not only in the United States is there this mostly two-party representation, but it somehow raises the stakes of things. So like you mentioned, John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson. Ever since that election, if, if you search on newspapers.com for the phrase most important election ever, that basically every election has been called the most important election ever. Like if you don't vote now, you're this is the end of the world because it's the most important election ever. And they you know, it really does feel like, like this, this past election, it was like, you're either voting for Hitler or Stalin, like depending on which side you're on. Yeah. Yeah. Like what I hear you saying is that politics has become too important in too many people's minds, right? Like it's seen, is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 It's like, like I always ask people for some people, the president of the United States does affect your life. If you're sent off to a war that affects your life, but for like, you or me personally, whoever the president of the United States is, my our lives don't change that much. And now whoever the mayor is or whoever the city councilman is, that might change your life. But the president doesn't change my life hardly at all. Right. I mean, probably Congress affects your life more. I mean, honestly, yeah. if we're going to look at the national level. Um, so John Dickerson wrote a really great book also about the the presidency being like this impossible paradox of an office like it just can't be done and it's it's become so high profile and so kind of exalted in in the coverage we give it and the way we look to it and and that it's just almost doomed to to fail so i think one way to make congress which is the legislating body right make that more um 
salient and like meaningful to people is to have ranked choice voting so that like if your favorite guy doesn't win, your second favorite guy does. And so there's a feeling like, okay, this isn't all or nothing. It's not like they win and I lose, right? Like there's, there, it's much more like real life, which is usually not fixed pie, zero sum. So, so, you know, with politics again, like this, particularly this past year, what happened? Like why were really smart people on both sides kind of blind to data? Like what, what does conflict do to the brain that, I mean, people were like, and I saw it really on both sides. I'm trying to be as sincere as possible with this. Like I really did see it where good things on both sides were ignored more than bad things were pointed at, but good things were ignored on both sides and, and just refused to acknowledge. Yeah. It is astounding. Right. I think the lesson I keep having to relearn is that people are just not interested in facts in conflict. Trust precedes facts in conflict. Like the psychology is so much more important than the politics or the policy. And we don't cover it that way. I wish that we would, but it is amazing to see how all of us, myself included, can really lose our minds in high conflict. You know, one of the stories in the book is about a guy who is like the guru of conflict mediation. He helped invent it, right? This guy knows everything there is to know about the traps of conflict. He's mediated 2,000 different cases. He's trained thousands of lawyers and judges, therapists, taught at Harvard, Stanford, whatever. So finally, in his little town of California, his neighbors ask him to run for office because you know, it was kind of getting ugly, kind of like the national political scene and they didn't like it. And they thought surely he could change the tone. Like he could do politics differently, right? And so he ran for office having never done it before with the best of intentions. And it took him about 10 minutes before he got sucked into this vortex of the high conflict in this little town. I mean, it was like a volunteer position, right? So what he learned and what he took from that, he did find his way to good conflict, like brick by brick, he built it. Um, he, because he realized he lost two years of his life is how he, he puts it, um, to this madness. He lost his mind. So if he can, if Gary can, then I know I can, right? Like he, he's not, he's not normal. Like he's exceptionally good at this and still he got sucked into it. And there again, one of the things that did him in was the binary. It was dividing the town into good and evil. And he had like a name for the other side and a name for his side. And that kind of thing is really destructive. So as much as I can, I try not to do that. Like I, I try not to talk about us or talk about them or even think of it that way, or at least catch myself doing that. But it would be easier if the society like didn't keep institutionalizing it. Well, what, but if you're running for something, there's almost by definition two groups, there's the people voting for me and there's the people not voting for me. And right. So, right. It's designed to create high conflict. Cause even after, if you win, you, you remember that. You. Yeah. yeah, you remember that, you know? And and so it, it is now you there have to again. You not care about winning so much. Which is, then why would you do it, right? Like yeah. the amount we require of people to run is incredible. So yeah, I mean, I do think not to be like, sound like a policy nerd, but I do think if you had ranked choice voting, right, then it's a little complicated even for the politician because you may have been someone's second or third choice, right? And your opponent might be someone you should ally with in proportional representation, if they're multiple parties, right, then you need to create coalitions. So there's a whole different, it's kind of like that Twitter overlay, like it kind of just tweaks the incentives and your mindset 
a little bit so that it's not quite as binary. And that is a huge deal. So it's sort of like, um, another way of saying is this like label, and you, you refer to this in the book too, like labeling the, the high conflict fringes of a conversation and not necessarily ignoring them, but downplaying, you know, just like on tw in your Twitter overlay example, okay, I still see this tweet, but it's labeled, this is a high conflict person. So I'm gonna look at a tweet, but I realize I, 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 sh I could warn myself in advance, I'm not gonna get sucked in. And so maybe doing that sort of labeling kind of helps even in your own things that you say, you can, re you can start to recognize, oh, oh, that was a high conflict thing I just said, I should try to mm. say something else. Maybe, maybe labeling is a good way to, you know, labeling the intensity. Yeah, labeling is a good word. I hadn't thought of that word, but that is a good word for it because it helps you surface who are the conflict entrepreneurs? When am I being a conflict entrepreneur, right? Um, I've definitely done that and I'm not proud of it, right? And so kind of noticing that and distancing yourself. You know, one of the people I followed for the book was Curtis Toller, who was a gang leader, pretty high ranking gang leader for many years in Chicago. And he was really just trapped in this pretty awful vendetta for many, many years. And one of the things he did to get out of that high conflict was literally move across town, like just literally move away from, from the conflict and the people, because then he didn't, it was hard, it, it slowed down the conflict. It's that same thing. So when his cousin got shot and killed, he didn't actually know who did it, right? Like he didn't, so he couldn't react the same way he normally would have, right? So there are lots of ways if you can distance yourself from the conflict entrepreneurs in your life, in your life, it, it makes a huge difference as far as accessing the, the, the person we want to be in conflict, right? Like, well, let me ask you, have you ever lost friends because of these sort of mindless conflicts? Like I feel, and again, I'm really thinking about this particular year, but it probably happens every year and every election, but I feel like a lot of people lost friends and, and we're happy about it too. Yeah, I, I, I feel like millions and millions of people have lost friends and relationships with family members. Yeah. I don't know, what makes you think they're happy about it? I mean, some people are happy, that's true. Some people are pretty righteous about it, but I think there's a lot of sadness around it too. Like a lot of- I think of, there is also. Yeah. I have found myself, so now I do the opposite problem, right? Where when I have friends who are like really strident and like nasty to other people on Facebook, I really get mad at them. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, which is no good either, right? Um, but yeah, that has been, that has been a challenge to, to sort of, okay, well, I want to distance myself from the conflict entrepreneurs in my life, but I don't want to sever them either because I know that one of the ways people get sucked in, like really, really lose themselves to conflict is when they feel isolated, right? And you see that with conspiracy theories and extremists, right? That one of the consistent reasons that happens is because of senses, a sense of alienation, loneliness. So I'm not going to connect with them over politics, right? Or over whatever the thing is that I feel like they're, they're, they're part, they're kind of participating in the high conflict, but I'm going to try to connect with them over the other things we care about. Right. And, and I'll say, I'll set boundaries. I'll be like, you know what? I just can't go there with you. You know, like, and it, and they know I don't agree. It's not like, I'm hiding that or pretending I agree, but I try to to not sever the relationship because I know that'll just make it worse. And even if they're totally true believers now, they may not be in two years or five years or 10 days, you know? So I want to be there for them then. 
that's such a great strategy, actually. Like, like if someone's high conflict, you can always tell yourself there's something on the other side of that. So one thing a lot of conspiracy theorists have in common is that some large institution at some point has betrayed them. And so, or they feel betrayed by some large institution. And so then everything after that, they don't trust any large institution. So everything becomes like the same people who are, believe the conspiracies about 9-11 might also believe conspiracies about, you know, vaccines or whatever, or, and uh, uh, many other things. And, but like, you look at someone like, for instance, and I'm, I, it's going to sound weird that I'm calling him out, but like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is very anti-vaccine and very anti, you know, how the government and the pharmaceutical industry deals with vaccines. But you also look at, this is a person who watched both his uncle and his father get shot and grow up as a young boy hearing theories about the FBI killed your dad and this and this and this. So there's this other side where there's a little boy was hurt and doesn't know why and, and, and had a little boy's view towards, you know, big enemy powers that destroyed his life. Wow. I never thought about that with him. Has anyone written about that? I don't, I don't know. I don't think you so. You should write I, that. That's interesting. He's been on the podcast and I haven't yet released that one because we got into a whole thing about vaccines and I didn't know, you know, I didn't want to give too much voice to that. And I, and I probably didn't research him enough at the time to really, it, it sort of came out in the podcast, how deeply hurt he was by these uh, obviously hurtful events in his life. But I didn't realize how mm. deep from the point of view of a little child, he was hurt and how that might affect how he feels about these other issues. Wow. Like, it's almost like, would it be cool to have him on again? Yeah, maybe, but I don't know if he would go on. Yeah, right. So, did, did he make the connection between his childhood and... No. Uh-huh. No, not at all. That is really interesting, though. Yeah, and I wonder if 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 a lot of conflict can be linked to that. What about conflict in marriage? What does that usually come from, and why can't people resolve it if they love each other? Yeah, so... The the some of the best research on this has been from John and Julie Gottman at the Love Lab in in Seattle, and they've studied like thousands of marriages. They're the ones who can tell. Yeah, like, exactly. In a few minutes, like they could see people talking. They said, "You're going to stay together. You're not going to stay together," and they have a lot yeah. of accuracy. It's like ninety percent accuracy in ten minutes or something, which I hate. Like that scares me. As someone who's married, I'm like, oh my god, you know that something about that feels really ominous. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but what they have found is that, and there's been other cool research on this too, where like there are couples in this world and a lot of them for whom conflict actually leaves them better off, not worse. Like it doesn't fray the satisfaction in the relationship. And one of the things that has been shown to actually help people with that, like you can, there's like a hack for that, which is basically, and it literally is like 20 minutes. Like, I mean, it's amazing how well it works. Uh, but these researchers found that if they asked a couple to write about the argument, because most couples have one argument that they have over and over for like decades, right? Um, and it just takes different forms, but it's like the thing that they argue about. So they ask them to write about their latest argument and as if it's from a third party, like a neutral third party who's writing about it, right? And we know there's something from the education research, there's something about writing that like really kind of like reorganizes the brain in some like mysterious way. But anyway, so they do that for seven minutes and they do it like two or three times over the course of a year. And these people, when they do this, like conflict doesn't deteriorate their relationship. It's like this weird antidote. 
So, you know, what's happening there? Well, one thing that's happening is they're forcing themselves to kind of step back from the conflict, to go to the balcony, which is what William Urey, the negotiator, calls it when he's in a really hot, you know, argument with, you know, Hugo Chavez or somebody like trying to negotiate a peace treaty and the guy starts screaming at him. He literally imagines he's like up in a balcony looking down on the scene and tries to get like really curious about like, why is this person screaming at me, you know, and how can I just listen, which he's unusually good at. I, I think that's very hard to do in the moment, but writing about it afterward is something that, you know, we could teach kids to do that in like kindergarten, right? Like that's not that big of a deal. It's like, how do you get some distance, some some psychic space from the conflict, which is again, another way to like slow it down. It's almost like using um, metaphors for meditation in conflict. So in meditation, typically people, one style of meditation is to say that you are not the, th is to just to consider that you're not the thinker. You're not the one thinking these voice thoughts. It distances yourself from your thoughts. And it's almost the same way with this. It's like this couple that we're observing right now is not us. We're just observing this conflict kind of more rationally as if almost from like another world. Yeah, that is such a great analogy. I'm, I'm repeatedly stunned by how many analogies there are with like mindfulness and the conflict research, even when it's like totally unintentional and no one is aware of the overlap. It is, I mean, there's something deep there that I don't fully understand, but yeah, getting, getting some distance from it seems to help us get a little bit curious and sort of access the higher order parts of our brain. And, and usually it's time that does that. So the Gottmans also say, you know, when you find yourself getting really worked up in an argument, you should definitely take a break and it should be at least 30 minutes. And the, I, I sort of knew that just intuitively, but the thing I didn't know is that you should do something totally different. Like watch a TV show, listen to a podcast, like listen to music, go on a run. Don't like walk around ruminating about like how wrong the other person is, you know, because then there's no psychic distance from it. But it's, it's so again, it sounds small, that, but it's hard to do. Yeah, exactly. Like if you are ruminating, you're like sucked in. It's like right. there's, there's neurochemicals that are feeding the rumination. It's hard to like turn them off. Yeah, I find for me like a, a, t a stupid TV show that I really like will help. Um, something, you know, video is so compelling, right? From an emotional standpoint um, or, a, or a really good podcast or running like those. I mean, everybody's got a different thing. But to your point about meditation, it is kind of similar in sort of reminding yourself that just because you have a feeling doesn't mean it's true. You know, that this is, it's going to change in a half hour and, and it'll be different in seven hours, you know? Um, and the other piece of advice that I've learned from all of this is, you know, that old, like that saying like don't go to bed angry, you know? Yeah. That's bullshit. Like, just let that go. Like, it's okay. <laughs> you can go to bed angry. Because you usually wake up not angry. Yeah. You feel totally different, right? Like if it's one in the morning and you're arguing, you know, with your partner, it's not going to go well because you don't have the resources to really access the parts of your brain that you need. The first time I heard that advice, I was a kid and I was on the show. You ever watched that show, Eight is Enough? I think uh, Dick totally, Van Patten yeah. was the, and his son, I want to say David, his oldest son was getting married. And that was the advice he gave David right before the wedding. 
Oh my God. Yeah. I spent like 10 years of my marriage, like feeling badly when we would go to bed angry because my husband would get really tired and he'd be like, can we please, please talk about this in the morning? And I would just feel like, oh my God, we're not supposed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, what am I supposed know, to do till then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's the problem. If you can't get to sleep, then that's not good. But yeah, it, it's like time is the antidote to so many things. Might as well use it to your advantage. And so I guess like one takeaway is just because you get into a heated argument with somebody over some binary subject, like who should be president or not, it's important to take a step back and say, this might not be a bad person. They're just a goddamn idiot about this one issue, but it can be okay <laughs> in other ways. But there's something else that's interesting here. You use the phrase conflict entrepreneurs a couple of times. Let's say you're an entrepreneur. It's almost like you want to create conflict. You want to create passion about your product and hatred towards the other side like the Coke and Pepsi wars, like some people who love Coke and hate Pepsi and will fight to the death about it. There's no reason they taste almost the same. People will of course disagree with me on that, but maybe I know this wasn't the intent of your book, but how do you actually create high conflict instead of good conflict? Yeah. Cause high conflict is incredibly like motivating. That's how you create a movement, right? That's how yeah. you create. And it's, it's like essential, I think for protest movements and other things. It's, but it's very, it's like fire. Like you want a little, but you got, you got to have a controlled burn, man, or else it'll, it'll just burn down the whole house. Right. So very true. one of the things, one of the things that is most haunting about high conflict in every single case I studied, the people in high conflict eventually end up mimicking the behavior of their adversaries without realizing it. So the thing that they went into the conflict to fight they end up doing. It's it's self-destructive, you know? So Gary, the politician that I told you about, went into politics to make it more inclusive and less toxic, and he made it less inclusive and more toxic, right? You end up mimicking the thing that you go into the conflict to fight. So it's very dangerous. It's a very dangerous game to play. I mean, I think you can have a very passionate, successful movement or company or startup that, he, that remains in good conflict. You don't want to demonize the other side. You don't want to humiliate the other side, right? Like there's a lot of bandwidth between, um, you know, competition, right? And like demonizing and dehumanizing someone, right? So there's a spectrum. And I think you just have to be conscious of those red flags, like humiliation, like, um, like you know, demonizing, like binary. Like these are, you know, there's also, there's not just Coke and Pepsi, right? There's uh there's what Mountain Dew is probably owned by Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. I think they all, they all got divided up about, but there was, um, gosh, what was it? There was RC Cola. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Hate those guys. Those yeah. guys are the worst. <laughs> you and know, this lost. happens even in outer space. Like, so NASA's put a lot of time on studying conflict because they want to do these deep space missions to Mars and they can't have high conflict in that situation. Cause like, you know, year and a half, I mean, you can't like, yeah. they have to work together and they found that they cannot choose a no conflict crew. They can only choose a low conflict or a good conflict crew. Okay. The conflict is inevitable and they, you know, I mean, it's like 75 times harder to be selected as an astronaut than it is to get into Harvard. So they can, they have their pick. Right. So they pick people who are exceptionally self-controlled in many ways and they give them conflict management training and still there's conflict. And it's almost always two kinds of conflict between each other on the ship, which you would imagine, but guaranteed between them and ground control. So there's that binary, right? Mm. Like ground control, 
Those guys are the worst. They're asking us to do stuff. They don't know. They're not here. It must be nice for them. They get to go home at night, you know? So it, it's like something they plan for. They brief everyone on it. Uh, I talked to a uh, an aspiring astronaut who did a deep space simulation where they literally like live with strangers in a windowless concrete building for a year, which I can't even imagine, but they're trying to study how people will behave on a Mars mission. And they actually made made that magic ratio part of their mission. So every day they would do things to build up the the side of the ledger that's positive, right? So they would celebrate birthday parties, they'd have Taco Tuesday, they would have like, you know, exercise together, they would they would routinely bring all their mattresses out into the shared space and create like a fort with like blankets, you know, like eight-year-olds do. It's, you know, like slumber parties. <laughs> they would do stuff like this, which sounds really like corny, but they knew that they had to build up that magic ratio of positive to negative. Yeah. So why do you think you need so much more positive than negative to establish balance? That's a good question. So, so if you say, if you say to your husband, man, I didn't realize how stupid you are. <laughs> now, now, why is it like five things you're going to now have to do that reinforces his ego so you that it's a, it's a really good question. I think it's like, there's been a, one of the most proven phenomenon in the human condition is the negativity bias. Just the same way you and I could probably instantly remember like the worst things people have said about us on social media. Yeah. Like our brain is always, always burned, like burned. We burn into it every negative thing that happens. And that's a survival mechanism, right? It just, it doesn't work great for the modern world, but there is something about negative experiences that are just incredibly, you know, like radioactive in our memory and in our brain. So I guess we're, we need to kind of like overwhelm that <laughs> with the positive. Well, I guess if you, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to take evolutionary psychology and almost apply it to everything, which is sort of the problem with it is that you could, I don't know. I don't know what the metaphor is. It's like a hammer that hits every nail or yeah. whatever, but it, you could imagine that a negative thing could get you kicked out of the tribe, which means you're going to die, you know, 40,000 years ago, 70,000 years ago, whereas a positive thing might only move you up incrementally in the hierarchy of the tribe. And it doesn't really change your life that much, which is why you need a lot more positive to balance this feeling of like, there's something negative. I could actually die from something negative because I yeah. can get kicked out of the tribe. Yeah. I guess it's like, I mean, I never bought into this. Like I'm, this is all new to me as well. Like I, you know, I was the kind of person who didn't want to go to the, like if there was like a birthday cake in the office for someone's birthday, <laughs> like I was super awkward and contrived and not like organic, but now I always go to that stuff. Of course, now I can't go because of the pandemic, but <laughs> every chance I have, um, in the, in a neighborhood too, like there's a lot of like terrible conflict that happens in neighborhoods. Right. So any chance I get to be helpful to my neighbor and it sounds like manipulative, but I mean, you know, maybe it is a little bit, but mostly it's like, I just, I, I want to get along with this person. Like I know conflict is going to arise sooner or later. And I want to have like money in the bank so that we treat each other with, you know, decency. But you know, it's interesting because you also say in the book how contact doesn't necessarily resolve a uh, uh, conflict. So just forcing people to, like you always hear these beautiful uplifting stories that become Oscar winning documentaries. Like, oh, this guy was in the KKK and used to burn crosses at 
this African-American's house. But now if you force them to live together for six months, like in a reality show, they're all going to suddenly love each other. And you point out in the book that doesn't really work a lot of the time. And sometimes it makes things worse. Yeah. I mean, I think contact theory is what you're referencing. And that's something that's been studied like all over the world. And the basic deal is if you expose people who are across a big divide um, under certain conditions, prejudices will typically re be reduced. And it's like the most proven way to reduce prejudice. And there aren't that many, unfortunately, other ones. But that was like the key phrase, right? Under certain conditions. So some of the conditions are easier than others. But one of them is that both parties in this little encounter, whatever it is, need to have like roughly equal status. If not in the world, then in the room. Um, you can't have like, you know, one that's much more powerful or dominant than the other. It doesn't work as well uh, or at all. It can backfire. And the other thing that's really important is you got to work on some problem together. There's something about trying to solve a problem together that is like kind of creates a new identity, even though we don't consciously think of it that way. But it's really hard to get rid of an existing identity, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Black, White, man, woman, whatever. It's much easier to create a new identity. Why do negotiations between workers and management often make relations? When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. It's worse. So like one side <sighs> yeah. wants more money, the other side doesn't want to give more money. Or And there's maybe 10 other issues. And it's not necessarily the case. They're trying to solve a, a common problem so that the, the company can move forward but sometimes it makes things worse. Like what conditions aren't being satisfied in those cases? Yeah, I mean, I think in that case, it's adversarial. Like wh when that works badly, it's because it's, it's set up as like an us versus them, zero sum kind of mm. mindset. Um, so it's not that they don't know each other as humans, it's that they're thinking about it as zero sum, right? So that, I mean, you know, the best negotiations don't work that way, right? They try to come up with creative ways for it not to be zero sum, but I think, where you see really ugly 
uh, union management disputes, it's both sides or one side is looking at it like an adversarial situation, right? Um, you see that a lot with teachers unions in the United States, but not in other countries, right? Where teachers unions have a different history and relationship with management um, and same in, in other companies, right? So, I mean, there's a great study that was done on a labor dispute with Dow Chemical and what they did, they had this big strike walkout, huge, very expensive kind of meltdown thing. And they eventually got through it. And then researchers came in and asked everyone involved to come back to the table and recreate it. And strangely, some of them agreed to do this. And what they learned is that even after all this harrowing negotiation and strikes and media attention, they actually still didn't understand what each other wanted. Like they, they really didn't, know each other. So even though it seemed like they were, you know, they should have by now figured out what was most important to each other, they didn't know. So they, they, there's something called the illusion of communication, which is the very common belief that we have communicated when we haven't. Like we're really bad at it and in conflict we're worse, right? So part of the challenge I think with some of these disputes is that we're not really listening and we're not really trying to understand, you know, coming full circle to what we talked about in the beginning about Twitter. Like if you're really trying to understand someone, it's a whole different skill set and mindset, right? Than if you're just trying to win. But you know, and also there's some situations like take the union or the workers versus management situation. Part of the problem is you don't really know the agenda of the other side. You think, they want to make more money, but they're, let's say, let's say they're, they're representing the workers and, or let's say they're representing the management. Maybe they don't want the negotiation to be resolved peacefully. Maybe they want something bad to happen. You don't really know. And that's part of it. Also, it's not just that they're arguing about this one thing. There's also some mystery about what their real agendas might be. And, and that can't really be solved. Yeah. Like when people go into it, not in good faith, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, we're assuming yeah. all these things are good faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but they but maybe of fifty percent of situations for all, like even marriages, maybe some yeah. situations are not in good faith. They want the argument to be so big that divorce is the result, or they want the, the union negotiation to be so great that there's a strike and the union leaders establish more power over uh, in their jobs. Totally, and in politics and in social media, for sure, yeah. right? Like there are people who don't want to argue in good faith. It's just not useful to try to create good conflict. Both people need to want there to be something better. And there's no way to know, like if you disagree with me, I know you disagree with me, but I don't know what your deeper agenda might be. Like you might, there's no way to really know if you're a bad faith negotiator. Well, let's think about that. I mean, we know your past behavior, right? We also can ask different questions and listen for different things. Maybe that's a cop-out on my part, but I feel like one thing I've learned to do is listen for red flag words that people, like mediators do this a lot, right? Like um, there's an organization called Resetting the Table that that does this. And so you're listening. So even if they're not telling you, they're telling you, right? Like, or they might, they might reveal themselves. So one example is when people use um, metaphors, like analogies in their, when they're talking, they say like, it was just, it was, it was like a silver bullet or it was like, it hit me like a freight train, whatever. Always ask more about that. And the other time to ask more is when people use like hyperbole, like somebody I was talking to, I was at the dentist the other day and uh, the, the hygienist was talking about her mom and how her mom's like super into politics and making everyone crazy. And she's super Republican. And 
she didn't even like politics and she doesn't know. And, and she said, you know what she, she said to me? She said, I mean, I think both parties are filthy. And she's in my teeth. like She's cleaning my teeth, so I can't say anything. But <laughs> I was struck by that word. Like, I didn't see it coming. Filthy. That's a strong word, right? It shows disgust. Like, there's, some, there's something else going on there. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't get to it in the, in the appointment. But there are times when people say, you know, I just... I just, I felt sick to my stomach, right? There are these words that people use and it, it may reveal something, right? Like, it's worth think, asking about. What do you think in this case it, it might've revealed? Like what are the choices? For filthy? Yeah. I think um, something about that suggests to me, and again, unfortunately, I don't know, I'd have to really listen, is that she has like deep revulsion for both parties. There's something about that, that, but what something both have done, both sides have done that really um, feels like a threat to something that's very core to her. Mm. You know, what that is, I'm really curious about. I don't know. And I'm not arguing. I mean, yeah, there are filthy things, right? <laughs> like, but it's just a word that struck me. And that's where you want to kind of like ask more. Earlier, we talked about almost complicating the dialogue. I forgot what the phrase you used was, but like uh, making the conflict more complex. Yeah. It puts in more more places to say, I don't know. But I could also see how that could be dangerous. So for instance, one time I did a little experiment where I wrote an article where I basically explained both sides of pro-life and pro-choice. So I basically said, here's why I see some people are pro-choice. Here's why I can see some people are pro-life. Uh -huh. And both and both sides, you know. And here I I kind of said at the outset that I was I was wanted to see if people would agree or everybody would hate me, and both sides attacked my reasons that they did not agree with on the pro life or pro choice thing without acknowledging that it was an experiment to begin with. Like everybody hated me, and <laughs> uh, uh, but but not. And I didn't say whether or which side I agreed with. And I just said, there's, I could see why somebody, if someone's religious, of course, they're going to be, and grows up this way, they're going to be pro-life. And we don't really know when consciousness emerges. And on pro-choice, yeah, this woman has to deal with this for nine months. Let, let her choose. Who cares? You know, it doesn't, yeah. it's not a big deal. But everybody hated me. And also <laughs> the fact that I was a man. So right. a lot of women said, I don't need a man telling me blah, blah, blah. When I wasn't even trying to make any opinion at all. So by making it more complex, I actually mm. had more people get angry at me. Wow, that's frustrating. And was this on, where were they getting angry at you? Facebook. Okay. So, but, and, but, which basically also means that they're all my quote unquote friends. <laughs> right. And, and was there, there were no other voices? It was, it was like either one or the other? Uh, yeah, I mean, I broke it into binary. And I use as an example, I have a business partner, I'm pro-choice and I have a business partner who's extremely religious pro-life. And we've discussed this issue many times over the past 20 years and never once had an argument because what are we going to do? Argue about that? Like, there's no point. And I even set the stage by describing that hmm. scenario and then basically presented all the arguments on both sides. Hmm. Yeah. And, and you felt like it didn't work because it just inflamed everybody. Right. So rather than showing that there's nuance in a pretty complex issue, people don't, people sometimes don't want complexity. Mm. They want Trump to be Hitler. Right. They want Biden to be Stalin and demented or whatever. 
and they don't want right. uh, uh, That's simplicity. for sure. Yeah, when people are in it, when they are really in high conflict, they do not want complexity. That's right. I have to keep reminding myself that most people want something different than what we've got. But I hear you because the most vocal people are the people who are most invested, right, in the high conflict. They're the people on Twitter. They're the people on Facebook. They're the people posting on these places for sure, right? And so we know that most Americans are totally exhausted by the conflict we're in. They want something else. And they actually th think it's the number one threat facing the country, right? So the problem is, I have the same problem, by the way. Like when I write, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post about like, you know, how we turn each other into caricatures and villains and we get things wrong. Like, you know, we're making mistakes all the time and the most politically engaged people make the most mistakes in all the research, right? The people who consume the most political news make the most mistakes about each other. It's like just diabolical. And all the comments like instantly were just like, but Trump started it. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, oh my God. Um, so, but I actually think there are a lot of people who read stories like that who don't comment, you know? And so it's harder to surface them because again, we've designed this whole thing for conflict, but they're out there, right? And it's like the more of us keep doing this, the more normalized it becomes to acknowledge complexity. There was a great speech. I mean, I, I think what you did is cool. And, and it reminds me of, there was a New York Times article a couple of years ago about abortion and how like all these different polls show all these different things. And I thought it was so great because the story did not simplify it. Like it just held the tension. And literally the kicker or the end line of the story was something like, it's hard to reconcile it all. <laughs> Which like, yeah. you know, journalists typically don't, like you're supposed to come up with a conclusion and, you know, make it simple. Um, but he was saying, you know, like on the one hand, some people think this on the other hand and the third hand, the fourth hand. And like, if you ask the question differently, you get different answers on abortion. Like people experience a lot of internal dissonance about abortion, but yeah. we very rarely allow it. Right. Because if you, if you, if you look for middle ground, then it's like, you know, you give an inch, they'll take a mile. That's the flip side of that. You know, right, but like gun control, right? Like it's yeah. like, yeah, next thing you know, you're taking away my guns. So like it's it's really makes it hard and, and it's self-destructive like because you get paralyzed by that, right? By that sort of like whiplash. It's either one extreme or the other when actually most Americans agree on many things about abortion and gun control and would like to see many things happen, right? But it's been sort of captured by the activists. I guess a little bit of the conclusion, maybe not completely, because sometimes you do have to enter into arenas of conflict. But a big takeaway for me is, is that maybe labeling where the conflict fires are, so I, at least I understand what is happening, is is valuable. So then I can decide whether to enter this conflict fire or not, or or aim my energy elsewhere. And then the, also understanding the five to one, like if I want to keep a relationship with somebody don't just try to hum humiliate them in debate. <laughs> try to really understand their side, steel man the argument and, and work things out. And the other thing is, is that I always thought high conflict was the norm. You're telling me that there's good conflict has actually been more successful throughout society. And you give in a great example, you know, there, there's the book by William Golding, uh, The Lord of the Flies, where it shows if you leave a bunch of kids on a remote island, they're gonna end up uh, destroying each other. 
But actually there was a real life example of this happening in the sixties and you showed how they kind of naturally or intuitively figured out how to have good conflict. And that, that was interesting. I didn't know that story. Yeah, I had no idea. I always believed the Lord of the Flies thing. I mean, I have, you know, I have a son. Every time there'd be a bunch of little kids running, little boys running around, I'd be like, ah, it's Lord of the Flies. You know, I make these jokes. And actually, in real life, the closest thing we have to Lord of the Flies turned out the opposite. Like the boys found ways to resolve conflict. And one thing they would do, by the way, when they got in a fight, which happened, of course, is they would take the separate the two boys and they would each go to opposite ends of the island. They were like shipwrecked basically on this island. And uh and they would have to spend like four hours apart. So that goes right back to what the marriage researchers found, right? About time and distance. And, um, and then they would come back and have to apologize. Um, but the other thing they did is the magic ratio. Like they would start and end every day with music. Like they made this like, you know, makeshift guitar out of something. And they would just do things that were fun because, you know, they're kids and kids are better at that than adults. But that I'm sure also helped create that kind of reserves, that buffer for conflict. Yeah, and that, that 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 it's so interesting that that happened in real life. I had no idea. And the other thing is, I wonder if always in life, I mean, ultimately we could only do something about our own state of mind. And so maybe, you know, rather than focusing on, I have to convince this person or else I can't get off Twitter. You know, there's that joke, like some, I can't go to bed now. Someone on Twitter disagrees with me. Like <laughs> maybe the whole thing is always just complicating it for yourself. So you realize, hey, I don't know. I don't know this. I don't know everything. I mean, every, as soon as the pandemic started a year ago, uh, everybody became like, everybody on my Facebook feed suddenly was like a semi-professional epidemiologist <laughs> overnight. And, you know, realizing, you know, and I, I've been on a lot of news shows and they kind of even tell you, like, if you say the words, I don't know, you'll never be asked back. So oh, it's man. like, you know, conflict is sort of baked into the system, but being aware of that is, is, is helpful because you could only sort of keep yourself calm. You can't calm everybody else. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I agree. And I have this secret theory. I could be wrong, to your point. I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> that we're not alone. Like I find myself lately, when I listen to a podcast or something and like the expert is like, just knows everything. It's just like super confident that he knows everything about some super complicated issue. It just, I'm just not, like, I'm not into it. I just, for me, it's just not, I don't, it's not believable and it just kind of puts me off. So I have the opposite reaction than I might've had 10 years ago. Maybe that's me getting older, I don't know. But like, I have a theory that people are done with the level of fear mongering and vilification and oversimplification that we are seeing on social media, in the news media. It is exhausting. People are actively avoiding the news. The thing that, you know, myself and my colleagues create, people are actively avoiding it. Like it's a virus, right? Yeah. And uh, that's not good, right? So I think there's latent demand for something different. I could be wrong. Many people think I am, but I hope I'm not. No, I, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think around, around 2010, I totally stopped reading news. Like I didn't go to news websites anymore. I changed a little during the pandemic because I was doing daily podcasts about how to interpret the media about the, the virus and everything. But for 10 years, roughly, I avoided all news websites, newspapers, everything. And then people would say, well, how would you get informed? Uh, you, you'll be uninformed. You won't, you won't be able to contribute. And I found that actually I was more informed because instead of getting all my information from like one or two sources that may not be accurate, things that were important enough to be aware of 
you would hear about it. It's not like people would keep it a secret from you. Like your friends would talk about the things that were important and then you could sort of research the source. So when there was news about Brexit, I knew it was important because the stock market was being affected. And so I would look at the actual deals, but the trade agreements between the different countries rather than read a newspaper summary. And you get on the things that are important, they bubble up to the top and then you could go to the source. Now, I don't know how that replaces news and I don't know if that's good for everybody, but that just became my technique until this past year, which almost ruined my life by reading news again. Like it was so upsetting. But interesting. Yeah. I, I I think that's, I mean, I think you're onto something. It took me a lot longer to come to it. I mean, I think because I'm supposedly a journalist, I felt like I always had to read three newspapers every single morning. You know, like I had like a routine and I felt bad if I didn't do that. Yeah. 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 This past year, same. Like I, well, I actually went the opposite way. Like you tune back in, I had to tune out because I just found like, I can't be useful to people in this world the the more news I consume. Like it it just well, is just, just counterproductive. So, but trying to, I don't think it's a great solution. Like I, I want there to be a news outlet for you and me. Like I want there to be a way to know what's going on in the world in a way that's in perspective and useful as opposed to like soul crushing and fear mongering. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Like what are five things that people are, dreadfully binary on, like, let's say, you know, pro guns, not pro guns, pro life, pro choice, uh, vaccines, anti-vax, uh, whatever it is, mm -hmm. Trump, Biden, what are some things, what are, what are three to five things that you don't know that people would be upset to hear you say, you don't know <laughs> that, that I could say right now, I don't know. Yeah. Oh man. I don't know enough about any of those things, you know, like, is that what you mean? Yeah, but like, like you don't know whether it's good to take a vaccine or not. Like oh, oh, like like the things that are in the news right now. Yeah, that I don't actually know enough about. Um, Where you're supposed to know, or you're supposed yeah. to have an opinion. <laughs> like everybody's supposed to have an opinion on on these things. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, the filibuster. I fucking do not know, man. I've li I've tried to understand it, and I'm just like, I don't know. The vaccine, okay, that's a good one. I, do I really understand how the vaccine works? Like, can I explain the, like, the, the sort of science behind it? No, I cannot. And you could argue that probably I should, right? If I'm going to make a decision, but that's not how humans make decisions, right? So well, like, I for instance, do you think everybody in the country should take a vaccine or not? No, but do I know enough? You know, I know what I've read, which is we don't need that to get herd immunity. And then when you force people to do stuff they don't want to do, it makes things much worse and you get a backlash and... You know, we haven't had that with other, uh, we haven't forced it for other things. What do you think? Yeah, I, I thought I knew, I thought like, okay, everybody should take this vaccine. It's not a big deal. But then I was, someone was saying the other day that there's all these variants coming out that might be mutated enough where they're going to need more vaccines. And so what we don't, what we really don't know is how many vaccines we're going to have to take. And then I guess we don't know mm -hmm. how they all are going to interact with each other if we take all of them. So that mm. made me confused enough to, to legitimately say, I don't know, without being anti-vax or pro-vax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's like, we almost need different language. Like what, okay, there's anti-vax, there's pro-vax, but like really most people are neither of those things, right? Like, like it makes me think about Democrats and Republicans, like the Pew Research Center did this study where they identified nine very different political groups in the country. 
So there could be at least nine parties, right? But there are two. And the same with vaccines, right? Or the same with abortion, right? Like that is not actually how people feel. So it's just not accurate, right? Like, Should America, should the U.S. be the world's police in the sense that let's say there's a genocide happening in some random country, should the U.S. send in troops? This is a fun game because I, I <laughs> notice I have an immediate reaction, which is to answer yes or no. Yeah. And then I catch myself being like, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Like, I don't yeah. know enough to answer that question. Like, I just don't. Yeah, I don't I don't either. Because on the one hand, I feel like, yeah, we should stop genocides when we can. And the U.S. has the power to do whatever it wants around the world. And on the other hand, if you're the person making that decision, like the president of the United States, you're sending at least one 18-year-old kid to his death who wouldn't have otherwise died. Yeah, uh, and you're creating all kinds of unintended consequences that you can't control, yeah. right? Like... Like who yeah. who steps in in that dictator's place, and I mean things we've seen. So yeah, it's and it's uncomfortable. I mean, I think we should just acknowledge, right? Like it feels uncomfortable. Like it would feel better to just like answer you with a strident, passionate, convincing <laughs> string of words, right? But I think that means we're doing it right. Yeah, but it means it it, it creates less content for media. Because <laughs> the best content in media is like a strong argument or something. You should never, ever uh, go to college or you should, you know, never go to war. Uh, that creates the best content because then it gives something for people to argue about. Like I remember there was this book when I was a kid, The 100 Most Influential People in History. And it created so many arguments around the dinner table <laughs> because it was like, these are the 100. Yes, yes. Well, the people love rankings. I mean, there's no changing that. But... I still have the secret hope, as you know, that actually the best media content has yet to be discovered, that people are getting really fatigued with the extreme conviction and, and righteousness, or not everyone, right? Like, so 30% so of people love that, just eat it up, will never stop loving it. But then what about the 70% who remain? Yeah, I'm going to think about that. It's the, there, there should be a, a political, well, there used to be a political party, the Know Nothing Party, but that was a racist, whatever, pro-slavery party. Right. And, but there's, there's, there got, there's got to be more room for I don't know to in, in conflict and in society. But anyway, you, this book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out by Amanda Ripley. Also, I meant to talk more also about the, the smartest kids in the world uh, book and uh, uh, I always, I always forget the titles of books cause I get nervous in these. Oh, books. that's right. Uh, um, but let me go to your Amazon page because there was also, this book also was amazing. The unthinkable who survives when disaster strikes and why, like you looked at all these disasters and the people who survive and the people who don't. It's also it sort of reminds me of, you know, the Victor Frankl's book on, on meaning and how he survived world war two. But you'll have to come back on the podcast and talk about these two books because they're, they're, you, you pick such engaging subjects to write about. And this book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out is so interesting and so relevant right now and so important to understand these issues before people go down social media sinkholes and lose family members and friends and so on. So I hope people read this book and really learn from it. 
Thank you so much, James. I love talking to you. It's fun. And I appreciate your, your curiosity and your openness. We got to have more of that. There is, there is another way to do conflict. Like it doesn't have to be this miserable. I've seen it. I didn't believe that once, but now I do. So there's a lot of hope, I, I, I think, out there. We just have to decide if we want it. I hope there's a lot of hope. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And will you come back again to talk about the I unthinkable that, and course. the smartest kids in the world? All right, we'll, we'll schedule that. All, All right. right. Thanks so much, Amanda. Amanda Take Ripley, care, high conflict, why we get trapped and how we get out. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.